where we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. This morning, we're going to be taking a break from the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday uh, in Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this morning. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, said to them, go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, one that has never yet been sat upon. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt, tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus, put their garments upon it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut in the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem. He came into the temple. And after looking around, he departed for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Let's pray. God, as we read this account of your triumphal entry, may you speak to our hearts. May you reveal to us Jesus. Not as we would like to see him. May you reveal to us Christ, not through our own perceptions, but may you reveal to us Christ in all of his glory. As the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. Lord, may we this morning surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, the theme of my message this morning is something that that I am confident that every one of you will agree with me upon because it is something that the Scripture tells us that all humanity will agree upon all of those that are in heaven, all of those that are in, uh, 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 all of those that are in heaven, all those that are on earth, all those that are under the earth. The scripture says in Philippians chapter two that at one point in time, that all will recognize that Jesus is the King, and while He is the King, He is indeed an unorthodox King. He is not the King as we would expect. He is not a King uh, that we would necessarily have chosen, but it does not change the fact that He is King. And so as we get into the text, I want us to, to understand and, and try and get into the mind of the first century Jew as they would have seen this, as they would have watched this scene unfold. So for the last 
oh, I don't know, 600 years, 800 years, whether you're in the northern kingdom or whether you're in the uh, southern kingdom, the people of Israel have been under under captivity. They have served, uh, served under the captivity beginning with the Assyrians in the northern kingdom. Then they served under captivity with the Babylonians. Then they served under captivity with the Persians. Then they served under captivity of the, of the Greeks. Then they served under the captivity of the Romans. And so for generation after generation after generation, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, have been a people of who have served and who have lived under oppression. They have not known freedom. They have not known their, their own identity. They have been struggling to maintain who they were and who they are. For the Israelite people, there were three pillars of their faith. The land that God had given them, the Israel, the, the, the land of Israel, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was the temple that God had built through Solomon. And there was the law that God had given them through Moses. And at this point in Israel's history, at this point in Israel's history, they had no land. They had no temple. The temple had been destroyed. Yes, it had been rebuilt under Nehemiah, but it was, it was a shadow of what it once was. The only thing they had left was the law. So they were struggling to maintain their own identity. And then there's this, this talk of a Messiah. And they had heard the whispers of a Messiah years before. Their grandparents had told them about a Messiah that that we thought that there was a Messiah during the during the the Maccabean revolt during the time of of oppression. We thought that that there was going to be a Messiah by the name of Judas Maccabees and he was going to deliver us and throw off the oppression of Rome, but that waned. And now there's talk of a man who heals the sick, who feeds the thousands. There's talk of of a man who confounds the religious elite. There's talk of a man who who gives grace and mercy to the oppressed and to the broken. And there is a renewed joy and there is an expectancy that maybe this man... Maybe this Jesus of Nazareth, maybe he will be the coming Messiah that we have been expecting. The coming Messiah that that Isaiah prophesied about, that Jeremiah prophesied about, that Ezekiel prophesied about. Maybe this man will be the one to throw off the bondage of the Romans and restore to us the kingdom of David. Now I want to point out to you what they're expecting the Davidic kingdom was the, the epitome and was the, the highest point in Israel's history. During the Davidic kingdom and during, during the reign of, of David and Solomon, Israel was and, and, and had experienced the height of their power, the height of their, their affluence, the height of, of prosperity. They were, by all accounts in, in ancient civilization, they were a a, a world power. They had money. They had influence. They had military might. They were, now they weren't to the, to the degree of Egypt or Babylon or Persia, but they were a major player. And they had money and they had power and they had prestige and they had prosperity and all the world knew it. But then, the Assyrians came in and raided the 
Babylonians came in and raided. The Persians came in and, and, and Israel was decimated. And I want to point out to you the scene here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, this is the scene. The Mount of Olives looks over Jerusalem. From the, from the Mount of Olives, you can see all of Jerusalem. And so here you have the disciples and Jesus entering into Jerusalem and the Gospel of Luke tells us that, that they stopped there. And you can, you, can, you can picture it. Jesus and His disciples stop on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is giving them instructions as He is about to enter into Jerusalem. And they're looking out over the city. And they're seeing there at the very center of the city the Temple of David. Now, it's not what it once was, but nevertheless, it is the temple of David. It, it represents the very presence of God. And while they're suffering under Roman captivity, in their mind, their expectation is, this Jesus, whom we have been following, I watched this man walk on water. I watched this man raise the dead. I watched this man heal the blind. This is the Messiah. Peter and James and John and Bartholomew and James the Lesser, all of the disciples, they are convinced that He's the Messiah, that He is going to usher in the kingdom of God. And in their mind, the kingdom of God equals the kingdom of David, the, the, the reign of Solomon, Israel in all of its grandeur and all of its glory. That's what they're expecting. That's the scene. The Messiahship of Jesus in the book of Mark has been slowly being revealed. Jesus, in chapter 8, verses 27 and 29, we read this. Jesus went out along with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and He was questioning His disciples. Who do people say that I am? They told Him, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say... One of the prophets, and he asked them this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to them, thou art the Messiah, son of the living God. The Messiahship of Jesus has slowly being revealed to them. In Mark chapter 9, we see the, the, the story, we see the example of Jesus' transfiguration that Peter and James and John are brought up, brought up on top of the mountain. And Jesus is transfigured before them. And Jesus has this interaction with God the Father. And they are witnesses to that. The Messiahship of Jesus is slowly being revealed to them. And then you get to Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. And we see blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, have mercy upon me. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And they said, tell him to be quiet. And, and, and blind Bartimaeus, he continued to say, Son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. He is saying, the one who is going to usher in the kingdom of God. You are the promised Messiah. The one whom Isaiah prophesied. Ezekiel prophesied. Jeremiah prophesied. The one whom was promised to us through the Davidic covenant. Son of David, have mercy upon me. The Messiahship of Jesus is slowly being revealed. And in verse 3, for the very first time in Mark's Gospel, Jesus refers to Himself as Lord. Mark chapter 11, verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say to them, not Jesus, 
Say to them, the Lord, the Kairos, the Lord has need of it. Jesus, for the very first time in Mark's gospel, all the while he's been ministering, he's been uh, serving, he's been an example to the disciples on how they should live. But for the very first time, Jesus called himself the Lord, the Master. Jesus' identity, who he was, is now coming into clearer focus for the disciples. But their expectations would be shattered. How many of you have had expectations in your life how things are going to go? How many of them actually went that way? (laughs) Natalie and I got married. We had a five-year plan. (laughs) Thank you, Miss Ruth. I appreciate that. (laughs) We had a five-year plan. We were going to get married. I was going to finish seminary. She was going to finish college. We were going to begin, you know, we were going to take a church. And then we were going to start having children after we had, after we had done with, after we were done with school, after we were financially secure, after everything was in place, we were going to have, we were going to begin our family. Well, after we had been married five years, I had not finished seminary. She had not finished school. We had two children and one on the way. Things don't always go as we expect them to go. God has a tendency of shattering our expectations. Imagine with me, if you will, you're Abraham. God comes to you. He says, go and leave. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to create a people out of you. You will have many offspring. Look at the stars and count them. Look at the sand is on the seashore. And so shall your descendants be. Abraham's thinking, man, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to have more kids and more grandkids. And everybody, all the grandparents here know that, that grandkids are a whole lot more fun than kids, right? And, and, and if, if we could have grandchildren without having kids, that we'd start there, right? Well, well, Abraham is thinking, man, not only am I going to have a bunch of kids, I'm going to have grand, grandkids and great grandkids and great great grandkids. And, and, and my offspring are going to be as plentiful as the sand is on the seashore. How awesome is that? And then he's 100 years old and doesn't have a single kid. God shatters our expectation. God shatters our expectations. The disciples expected a Messiah. They expected a king. They expected a military leader. They expected a political leader. But their expectations were shattered. I want us to point out something as as we get into the text. Jesus tells them, go into the city, untie this colt of a donkey, this, this offspring, this young donkey, and bring it to me. That in and of itself, the 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 Old Testament uh uh, the Old Testament prophecies is that the, the act of a cult and Jesus riding into Jerusalem was a messianic fulfillment of Scripture. The Messiah, the, we're told in the, in the Scriptures in Amos that the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. But as Jesus tells them, he says, he says, tell them that the Lord has need of it. What Jesus is communicating to his disciples is something that I think we often miss in this passage, that Jesus is telling them of his ownership of everything. 
of His Lordship of everything. Jesus' ownership, the Lord's ownership extends beyond our finite definitions of what it means to own things. I get asked all the time when you're you know, dealing with any kind of application for uh, a credit or any kind of application for uh, anything financial, the first question that they ask you is, do you own your own home, right? And if you're paying a mortgage, you respond by, yes, I own my own home. The reality is, is you own nothing. The bank owns your home. You know, we pay a mortgage. And in, you know, by the time I'm 68, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll actually own my home. But will I really? Even when I have the deed in my hand, do I own it? We have the titles to our cars. We have the, the deeds to our homes. You know, we have stuff to the nth degree. And we think we've convinced ourselves, we have persuaded ourselves that we are actually the owners of things. We have children. And we say this, I'm guilty as anybody. We say, my kids. I have three kids. No, I don't. God has given me the stewardship of raising three children. But they're not mine. And my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister... They're not ours. We own on this earth, we own nothing because all of it is owned by the Lord of glory. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, chapter 50, verse 10 and 11. God is the owner of everything. Psalm chapter 50 reads like this. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And in verse 11, it says, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves on the field is mine. What is Jesus, what is the psalmist saying? What is is God saying? He's saying that I own everything and that you, David, you own nothing. Now this is at the height of the Davidic kingdom. This is at the height of whenever Israel was the most prosperous it has ever been. And God reminds Israel, you own nothing. Everything that you have is mine and I am allowing you the opportunity to make use of it. But it's mine. It's God's. And when we understand God's ownership, all of a sudden it frees us up to be obedient to what God has called us to do. When we understand that you don't own anything, all of a sudden we can give with with the generosity and the cheer and the joy that God has called us to give. We can look to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling and who are suffering and who who are hurting financially and we can say, you know what? None of this money is mine anyway. Let me use it for the glory of God. Whenever somebody calls and says, hey, I need, to, I need to borrow this or I need to use this, we say, hey, it's not mine anyway. It's God's. Whenever we begin to, to pray about, about what our children do and how we, how, we, 
how we allow our children to be obedient to the Lord and how we encourage our children to be obedient to the Lord, we must understand that our children are not ours and that we give them back to the Lord. That's what, that's what Hannah did to Samuel. She gave him to the Lord, understanding his ownership. It's interesting. God often uses the resources of his enemies for his glory. During the rebuilding of the wall, during the rebuilding of the temple under the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes, God uses the enemy of Israel, God uses the Persians' finances to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Israel had just been completely destroyed. They had been sent into captivity. They had been sent into exile. All of their, all of their treasury had been completely wiped out. They had nothing, literally nothing. They were slaves. And God says, I need to rebuild the temple. So I'm going to take Persia and I'm going to use their treasury to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And he can do that because he owns it all. You know, it's interesting. I don't watch the news very often. Uh, I think politics and the economy... Uh, is, you know, whether you are Republican or whether you're Democrat or whether you're independent, uh, I think they're all a bunch of liars and snakes. And, uh, you know, they, you know, whether you voted for, you know, this liar or this liar, uh, it doesn't really matter uh, because God is the king and he is the one who's in control. But as you're listening to the news and there's this, this big fight right now about tariffs, the United States is imposing tariffs on China. China is imposing tariffs on the United States. And we're all fighting over, over you know, this little bit of money and that little bit of money. And, and we fail to realize, even Christians, even believers, that God is sovereign. And he owns it all. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. And he has blessed us. And our responsibility is to be obedient, to be stewards of of what he has given. So here's the question I have for you. Are you being obedient with what God has given you? Because you own nothing. Your house, your cars, your money, your retirement, your investments, none of that is yours. Are you being obedient with what God has given you? Your children, your family, your loved ones, are you being obedient to, to be stewards of what God has given you? Because God owns Everything, And I want to point out to you that his ownership, his lordship is not at the end of an accepted proposition. God doesn't become the Lord of your life. God doesn't become the owner of your life when you surrender your life to him. God is the owner of his life because of who he is and because of his position, because of his ordained position by the God of the universe. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, him being Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we don't get to make Jesus the Lord of our life. We don't get to surrender to Jesus what is his. He owns it. It is his whether we accept it, whether we surrender or not. Why? Because God has placed him in that position. Philippians chapter 2 says it like this. Therefore, For this reason, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who are under the earth, and at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has placed him in that position. You and I don't get to give Jesus lordship. You and I don't get to give him our lives. You and I don't get to give him our, our, our stuff. He already owns it. We simply recognize it and surrender to it. So Jesus tells the disciples, I own that donkey. Go get it for me. It's mine. So they show up. They start taking this guy's donkey. And uh, they say, uh, excuse me, uh, that doesn't belong to you. They say, you're right, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the Lord. It's Jesus's. The sound system doesn't belong to us or Guitar Center. It belongs to Jesus. It's interesting. Those whom Jesus said that to said, oh, okay. (laughs) Why? I believe because not only does God own that donkey, but he also owns the hearts of those people whom he asked. So when the Lord spoke To them, the Spirit of God worked upon their heart. Look at the proclamation of the crowds. As Jesus, they come back and they throw their cloaks, their coats on the back of this donkey. Jesus climbs upon it. And Jesus begins to enter into the city. He begins the trek down the Mount of Olives. In Mark chapter 11, we are told that they begin proclaiming, they begin shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna is translated, Hosanna is translated, save us now. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the next verse is, blessed is he who comes. He is bringing in, he is ushering in the kingdom of David. This messianic term, our expectation, bring us back to the political height. Bring us back to our prosperity. Bring us back to who we once were. The crowd shouted, save us now, because they were sick and tired of living under oppression. Their current circumstances, their current situation was all that they could see. They could see themselves. They knew they were suffering under the Romans. They knew that there was tremendous tax burden. They knew that there was a a, a religious uh, uh, oppression that they were suffering under that, that, that they were always in fear that the Roman government would, would put some other governor that would not be, uh, that, that would not be kind and then not, would not be amiable to the Jewish people. They were always in fear of the political oppression and their circumstance and their situation was all that they could see. And so they were crying out, Save us now. And they were crying out, save us now from the political bondage, from the the physical situation that I'm in. It's interesting. Throughout history, God had already delivered Israel multiple times from political bondage. Seems to be that we would remember if we're Israel that there was a time whenever we were slaves in Egypt. And God had delivered us out of political bondage. Yet that deliverance out of political bondage did not change the heart of the Israelite people. Immediately after they had been delivered from their circumstances and situations, what did they do? 
they went right back to worshiping false gods. In fact, in the wilderness, just days after God had dried up the Red Sea and destroyed the army of Pharaoh and brought them out of bondage, they create for themselves, melt down their jewelry, create for themselves a golden calf, and they say, this is the God who's delivered us. Jesus understood that their greatest need was not deliverance from political bondage. But they needed to be delivered from the bondage of sin. God had delivered them from political bondage before, but their spiritual bondage was their greatest captor. So many times in our lives we believe that if God will just give us what we want, if God will just, just answer my prayer, if He'll just give me this or that, if He'll just give me a good paying job, if He'll just give me, if I could just get into this school, or if I could just, if my kids would just be obedient, or if, or if I could just find, find, find this this relationship, or if I could, if, if this would go my way, or if that would go my way, if I could this, get this account, or if, if, if this would happen in my life, if we want our circumstances in our lives to change, and God says, you don't understand. Your greatest need is not for your circumstance to change, but your greatest need is for your heart to change. Your greatest need is not, is not that, that, that the political bonds of oppression would be freed from you, but your spiritual oppression. You don't need the life circumstances to be fixed. You need your heart to be fixed. It's interesting when we learn contentment in who God is. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Is it because God all of a sudden just gives us stuff? No, it's an issue of the heart. They say, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is the king who ushers in the kingdom of David. They saw Jesus as they wanted to see him, not as he is. How do we know this? Because in just a few short days, that same crowd that said, save us now, will cry, crucify him. Why? Because he was not what they expected. Because God had shattered their expectations. He said, your Messiah, your Messiah will not be a conquering king. He will not be a conquering warrior. He will be a suffering servant. And they said, we cannot surrender ourselves to a suffering servant. We will not surrender ourselves to a suffering servant. Crucify Him. He is not what we expected. He is not going to fix our situation. He is not going to to deliver us from the bonds of Rome. He is not going to usher in the kingdom of David like we want it. It's interesting. They saw Jesus how they wanted to see Him and not how He is. In the book of John, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the door. He said, I am the living water. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man comes to the Father but by me. He told the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus revealed himself as God, they crucified him. Jesus is not your buddy. Jesus is not your Savior. Jesus is not a vending machine that we go to when to get what we want. The Scripture tells us that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has made Him King. God has given Him the Lordship of everything. And He has revealed that to us through the Scriptures. But the great grace of God is that the owner of everything, the Lord of everything, the King of glory, came down to earth, gave up everything, took upon Himself your sin and my sin and became the object of the wrath of God to demonstrate His love for you and I that we might have eternal life. The owner of everything gave up everything that you and I might have a relationship with the creator of the universe. When we sang that song just before I got up here to preach, the great I am, holy, holy, none beside thee, you realize who Jesus is? That He is the means of creation. That every every cloud that you see, every tree that you see, every everything, every person that you see was created by Christ. That Jesus Himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is the means of creation. That He created everything. Not only does He create everything, but He sustains everything and everything is held together by Him. And He is the Creator. He is the Owner. He is, he is God. And God Himself, because of His great love for you and for me, gave up everything, emptied Himself, and became a man. And not only did He become a man, but He took upon you, He took upon Himself, your sin and my sin, all of the, all of the immorality and the, the, the wicked thoughts and the wicked deeds and the selfishness and the pride and the anger and the bitterness and the unforgiveness, everything that, that, that you harbor in your heart that makes us wicked, that Jesus took it upon Himself and He gave us His righteousness. And then He endured the wrath of God for the glory of His Father. And He paid the penalty for our sin. And He didn't have to do it, but He did it because He loved us. The great I am became the object of wrath. Why? Because he loves us. Ephesians chapter 3 says it like this. 
that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses our knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And when things don't go my way, which is often, when my expectations are shattered, which is all the time, we just back up. I think the King came down to heaven, came down from heaven, that I might have a relationship with Almighty God. And you know what? It's not going to go my way. The triumphal entry didn't go their way. But Jesus is still King. It's my prayer this morning that you will surrender your life to Jesus as King. You'll surrender to it because He is the only King. How much that He loved us that the owner of everything laid down everything that He might free us from our greatest bondage. That He might deliver us from the circumstance and the situation that plagues us. Not finances. Not our family situation. Not the hardships of this earth. But the bondage of sin that damns us to an eternity in hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you gave us Jesus, the unorthodox king, the king who came not as expected, the king who shattered our expectations who changed not our circumstances, but our eternal destination. Lord, may we surrender to that King. May we worship Jesus for who He is, not who we want Him to be. God, may this morning, may You draw someone unto Yourself. There's someone here this morning who needs to surrender their life to the Lordship of Jesus. They need to recognize that He is King and He is Lord and He died on the cross for their sin that they might have eternal life. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come during this hymn of invitation. May you come and may you say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Or maybe this morning, you simply need to come to this altar and say, for the last six months of my life I've been focused on my circumstance and God has reminded me this morning that I need to focus on Him the great I am when we turn our eyes upon Jesus the things of this world seem insignificant God may you speak to our hearts this morning on this Palm Sunday May you triumphantly enter into our lives and our heart. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is king. In Jesus' name we pray.